Hey folks, let's spend some time with friends up north. Pat Kreitlow of Up North News is on Lake Wissota. Sarah Yacoub of the Minocqua Brewing Company Super Pack is on the Mississippi River. And up on Lake Minocqua is Kirk Bangstead of the Minocqua Brewing Company. Wherever you are, welcome. You're up north. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Up North Podcast. I'm Kirk Bankstead from the Monaco Brewing Company. I'm Sarah Yacoub of the Monaco Brewing Company Super Pack. And I'm Pat Kreitlow, founder of UpNorthNewsWI.com. We are live on Wednesday evenings on the radio, and then you can listen back as a podcast over the weekend. Uh, we have two guests this week. One helps us discuss the proposal by some Republican legislators to, quote, unquote, allow 14-year-olds to work at jobs until 11 p.m. And later in the program, former State Senator Patty Schachner joins us to talk about politics, COVID, and more over on the western edge of Wisconsin. I think first, though, I, you know, you always talk about the weather first. You've got to get that out of the way. And I just want to say how thankful a lot of folks are for the uh, the mostly dry weather of the past few days. I'm still watching them uh, take corn off the fields over here, and it's always a little nerve-wracking until everything is harvested. So that's been good to see uh, because soon enough we will – there was a little light snow in parts of up north over the weekend. I was away, but I – Pat, I love this, Pat. You're You're like – so I've got all my uncles are from like the southern part of Illinois and mm -hmm. they're all farmers and it's it's just hilarious as soon as they start talking they're like well who's the first person to bring up the weather today because that's like what you have to start with if you're a farmer or come from a farming background you got to start with the weather no matter what happens in well, life or, or like me you marry into a farm family or you just have people that you <laughs> care about and we can't start with the sports because then we got to talk about aaron Rodgers being a doofus and not oh. getting not getting vaccinated and now he's gonna I, miss probably a couple of games but he got the homeopathic version of the vaccine oh, oh. is that is that true yeah oh yeah he wanted is that ivermectin no, I don't. He didn't say that. We don't know what it's going to be no. that he took, but eventually we're going to find out. And it's going to be, you know, right on par with, you know, licking a doorknob in terms of effectiveness. <laughs> uh, and we don't, we don't want to go there. Wait, because wait, what is a homeopath? Okay. So this is true, by the way, there is this Cal, I mean, don't get me wrong, Sarah, I know you're from Southern California, but there is this kind of yogi, like California, like like chunk that, that is not conservative and not weaving. trumper but they are definitely anti-vax and so i'm gonna throw aaron Rodgers into that crowd am i am i right with that i mean he's he's must be talking to the hollywood set you know he dates them well he well we've, we've got sort of that culture going on over in this neck of the woods as well but yeah it's the um the circle the, the political spectrum's not aligned it's a circle and they start to pop there <laughs> it's just you um, know i love a lot of people have been having fun with him on social media and and rightly so um one of my favorites was you'll recall a couple of years back when the packers had a slow start to the season uh aaron Rodgers uh, said to everybody r-e-l-a-x and i love that somebody's take today for aaron Rodgers was r-e-v-a-x or to put it another way, he should get the discount double shot because he's two shots behind, maybe three from where he should be. Nice. That's awesome. He would notice as if he could 
you know, he was at a Halloween party with a bunch of the Packers and they've only got one quarterback left. So if love goes down, what you play football in high school, you go in, uh, you know, Colin Kaepernick, Blake Bortles, yeah. you know, I don't know. Oh, Fran, yeah. Tarkin, Fran Tarkenton is still around over in your neck of the woods, isn't he? I don't know. Oh. Hey, we're going to take our first break. Now, when we come back, we're going to be discussing, and I cannot believe I have to say this out loud. We're going to be discussing why returning to an era of child labor is not a good thing. Even as Wisconsin Republicans introduce a bill to get those kids back in the coal mines, would you? We'll be right back. You're up North. Candy Mountains, all the cops have wooden legs, and the bulldogs all have rubber teeth, and the hens lay soft-boiled eggs. Welcome My back to the North Podcast. I'm Sarah Yacoub. Hello, everyone, and I'm Kirk Bankstead. How you doing? You like you like that uh, My Choice of Song there, the Big Rock Candy Mountain for this one? From Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? It was <laughs> the closest thing I could think of that would involve child labor would be something from the, the Depression era. Uh, we'll get to our guest to talk about that in just a moment. First, I want to thank our hosts here at News Talk 92.7, our broadcast home every Wednesday at 7. You can use the Devil Radio app to catch our show or any of the others. Uh, on the weekends, you can catch this as a podcast over at upnorthpodcast.com. And uh, as for my day job, I'd invite you to discover Wisconsin's top stories and headlines over at upnorthnewswi.com or search upnorthnewswi on your favorite social media feeds. Sarah? So Senate Bill 332 extends the hours that children under the age of 16 are able to work. So under current state law, children ages 14 and 15 are prohibited from working past 9 p.m. during the summer months and 7 p.m. during the school year. This bill would allow this age group to work until 9.30 on school nights and 11 p.m. otherwise. It doesn't overrule the Fair Labor and Standards Act that is designed to protect children and child labor, uh, which prohibits children from working more than three hours on a school day, for example. But if anyone uh, pays attention to local labor habits, those three hours usually uh, go over quite often. Um, and so we have a special guest here today to talk to us about what it means to regress on the issue of child labor. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, we're so lucky for one, we have a professor, uh, Barry Eidlin, who is the assistant professor of sociology at McGill University uh, in Quebec. And, and he author also authored the book Labor and the Class ID in the United States and Canada. Now, before I get further on into this, though, um, I have to say, uh, you know, although you're from the Harvard of Canada, uh, you <laughs> you do um, you do have uh, some bona fides in the state of Wisconsin. Am I correct? Indeed. Uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me. But yes, uh, after getting my PhD from the University of California, Berkeley, I was fortunate enough to relocate to the Badger State for two years when I did a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Wisconsin. So I really loved my time at, in Madison. And, uh, you know, I've, I've gone back actually to speak about my book. And uh, yeah, so it, it's, uh, it's, and so it's great to be able to be uh, addressing the uh, Wisconsin <laughs> audience again. Well, you're live in Madison radio right now, but you will be beamed to all of Northern Wisconsin this Saturday. So you'll have a much great. larger audience in, in podcast form. So thanks again for being here. And uh, normally we don't have such a, uh, such a, such a, well, 
I mean, other than Pat Kreitlow and Sarah, my two co-hosts, we generally don't have such smart uh, hosts or guests on oh, the show. Bless your heart. Get <laughs> to your question already. Okay, so obviously, child labor is what we're talking about, but um, I think we don't have to kind of belabor the fact that this is a bad policy uh, that has kind of been just kind of trumped up. I, sh you know, I I shouldn't say, but. Uh, in, to deal with a real issue, which is a tight labor market. And so I wanted to, you know, talk about, you know, ways that, you know, that we can relieve a tight labor market. But before that, because, you know, you've written a book about the, the labor, you know, the labor market unions in, in, in history, I wanted to, you know, kind of even go back and just have you kind of lay the groundwork on when in American history has the average laborer had enough, you know, been had it had the purchasing power to actually live a life that is not underwater and scary for them, you know, and and has that correlated with, you know, the rise and the fall or the, the rise of the labor movement? Oh, I just wanted to kind of get some historical background before mm -hmm. we jump into some policy stuff. Yeah, um, I thought you were going to ask about the history of child labor. Um, which which I could talk about, but I mean, I guess the, the short answer is that, you know, in the decades following World War II, um, there was a dramatic reduction in income inequality. So the distance between the top 1% and the rest of us was much lower than it was prior to World War II and certainly much lower than it is today. Um, you had, um, and and you also had a pattern where average wages tended to rise with average productivity, meaning that as workers were more productive, made more, essentially made more profit for their bosses, they were able to capture, you know, an equal amount. So the lines would sort of go in sync. And then starting in 1973, they basically diverge. And essentially that line about average wages has been flat ever since. So going on 50 years now, and productivity has continued to rise at the same rate that it has since the 1940s. Um, and a huge reason, and so basically that, and so the, the, so that productivity is, you know, you know, corporations are making money, they're, you know, the workers are being more productive, but they're not getting paid for their increased productivity, and that money is going into you know, the, the, the owner's pockets. American and workers are holding up their end of the bargain. Exactly. And so basically what, so, so, so you have to, so, so, and why is that? Well, that's, that's about, a, a, that's about unions. That's about the decline in the, in the, the bargaining power of unions. That's, that's deunionization. That's concessions bargaining. That's um, all that whole package of things that's happened um, since the 1970s. Um, that that is responsible. So you said maybe I did prepare you for the history of trial labor. I don't necessarily think anybody listening in our audience agrees that we should go back to a place where children have to work more to solve our labor problems. Mm -hmm. But but what is your what is your sense of the political maybe reasons behind like Wisconsin doing this? And instead of doing this, what are your thoughts? You know, from a policy standpoint of how do we address a, a tight labor market? Yeah, so I guess I guess you need to understand <laughs> that we're talking about a tight labor market, not a labor shortage. That's step one. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, so when employers are saying 
nobody wants to work anymore, it's always important to add in your head to that phrase, at the wage I want to pay them. Amen. Right? Um, Now, what's really interesting to me about this whole situation is that we hear a lot of rhetoric in society about the magic of free markets and the laws of supply and demand being these sort of ironclad laws that, you know, are, should be, you know, unfettered and should be able to work their magic to sort of ensure prosperity for everyone, except when it comes to wages, the price of labor. So if you have an econ 101 textbook, uh, the laws of supply and demand suggest that when supply goes down, prices go up. Um, and so if employers behaved like econ 101 textbooks, then wages would go up but they're not. And that's because you know, of this pattern I talked about earlier where employers have gotten used to wages not rising for the past 50 years, essentially. And that's a lot of that is due to employer power. And so they're used to having that power. And now they're in the situation where the economy does not, you know, is, is the, the labor market is tight. And that means that workers have a little bit more leverage, um, but they're not, in the mindset of like, oh, now I actually need to pay more. Um, It it would seem to me that flooding the market with children kind of goes hand in hand with not having that union power because children are not Mm going to be able to advocate for themselves the way adults will. And so easily exploitable, um, I would think. Do you think that's playing into this at all? Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's sort of like the, 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 the strategies are sort of basically any, they're, they're sort of throwing anything at the wall to see what will stick except for raising wages, right? And so, you know, that they'll, they'll try, you know, bringing in retirees, bringing in kids, trying to, you know, you know they, might, they might do some bonuses or something like that, but, you know. But you're but leading the, the, right, in, right into my next point. They'll bring in children. They'll bring in retirees. They'll bring in contractors rather than actual employees but and i know you think we're just talking labor law here but it's it's got to be said who won't they bring in they won't mm-hmm. bring in immigrants they won't embrace legal immigration they won't embrace immigration reform which mm-hmm. is so desperately needed at the end of the baby boom to keep our labor markets well supplied and keep the economy from falling apart at least that's that's my theory yeah so, I mean, obviously that that's part of, I mean, you know, immigration reform and, you know, and, and, a, you know, broad amnesty and citizenship for everyone who's here is, is, a, is a great start um, that would solve a lot of these problems and then, you know, combined with, with increasing wages. But yeah, I think, you know, trying to just find more ways to exploit younger workers is not the answer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's, what's your take on this idea that, um, that you fill the market, uh, or excuse me with the (laughs) brain fart, the, what, what's your take on the effect that this will have on the middle class? So as you know, so kids of rich families will continue to educate their kids. And families that maybe need their kids in the labor market are going to say, hey, you go work that restaurant job till 11 o'clock at night, and which takes them away from school, from sports, from extracurricular activities. 
And it seems like it would cause an even further divergence and even more of a dissipating middle class. Is that, do you have any thoughts? I mean, that, you know, obviously it's too early to tell because it hasn't happened yet. But yes, that seems like a likely course of events we have to understand. I mean, I think that, you know, the way that, 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 you know, that employing young workers is usually pitched as, as a sort of learning experience, a character building experience like that. But this is clear, this sort of extension of the work day is clearly aimed at this, you know, serving this economic purpose, right? It's not a training purpose. And, you know, when, when, and, and you're right that, you know, a lot of, a lot of kids, um, you know, that, that there are the kids of sort of well-off families who are just sort of getting some work experience, you know, getting some pocket money, but there are kids, you know, and particularly given this trend I was talking about, about stagnating wages, you know, like that, that is, you know, what, what, how do households make ends meet when wages are flat and, you know, the price of gas is going up and the price of food is going up and everything else is going up. Well, one of the solutions is, you know, you have extra money from the kids, you have more female labor participation. Um, you know, some of that is obviously feminism, but some of it is, is you know, that, that you have to have more incomes to make the household budget work. Um, and, you know, so, so, so we could easily suspect that the people most likely to you know, be subject to these more extended hours are people who, for whom it's more of an economic necessity. All right, I got one question. So, you know, we've, it, it was this probably, this was two, probably a generation or right when I was growing up um, is, it was what I remember, but what I've read about, my, my mother was a stay-at-home mother. My father, believe it or not, was a professor and they don't make much money, we know that. Um, but maybe they'd better do better in Canada than they do in America. But um, we had enough to, you know, for my mom to stay, stay home and take care of the three kids. Uh, we all had some jobs, you know, to, so they didn't have to like, you know, like, you know, help us live when we were in high school. We were able to take two weeks vacation somewhere in America, you know, in the summertime. Um, I think that's largely disappeared and I'm 44 years old. Um, to me, that should be the ba basic minimum that every working class American should be able to deal with. And we know that that exists in so much other, so many other countries around the world. Um, how can we get back there, you know, in a, in a perfect world without crazy, you know, people trying to make kids work more? How do we get back there from a policy perspective, maybe from a union perspective? You know. Yeah. Well, it fundamentally has to do with changing the balance of power and and giving and workers fighting for more power. And you know, I think that you know we've seen some glimpses of that in recent years. I mean, we, right now we have the John Deere workers uh, who have rejected their contract for the second time uh, and trying to fight back against sort of two tier wages and um, you know pension cuts and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the scale is just nowhere near what needs to be happening. So I think, you know, if we, if we get to a, a you know, cause right now we've got roughly 10% unionization rates in, in the United States. Um, that's just far too low. And because the thing is, is that, you know, you know, in the 1960s and stuff like that, when we were more like a third of the workforce unionized. What is it in it Canada and Germany? Just, 
just by the way. So like, in Canada, current unionization rates are roughly 30%. So roughly three times what they are in the US. And what my book is about is because up until the 1960s, they were virtually identical to what they were in the US, but US kept on declining and Canada was able to sort of stay the course. Um, you know, it's not a great situation. Canadian unions are have a lot of problems, but they're much better off than they are in the US. Um, what's important to understand though is the the, the way that that unions um, create what 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 as sociologists refer to as moral economies. Uh, and that, that's a sort of fancy term for basically they just set the norms for what people expect a job should entail, right? And so even if you weren't in a unionized job, non-union employers sort of felt the pressure to match the union rates right. and workers who weren't unionized sort of understood that that was sort of the standard. And in a world where you're at 10%, um, you just don't have that, those moral sure. economies have evaporated and the market power has evaporated. So any yep. solution to this problem has to start with rebuilding worker power and that starts with unions. Sounds good. Barry Island, thank you so much. This is the Up North Podcast. We'll be right back. So is the theme of the next segment here on the Up North podcast uh, by Paramore, and our guest is uh, is is the Queen of Told You So for very for many very good reasons, and we'll get to her in just a moment. But first, uh, again, I want to welcome you back to the cabin. This is the Up North podcast. I'm Pat Kreitlow, along with Sarah Yacoub and Kirk Bankstead. We uh, had to cut off our last guest because of the hard commercial break. So I just wanted to let you know again that Barry Eidlin, and his name is spelled E-I-D-L-I-N. Barry Eidlin is an assistant professor of sociology at McGill University in Montreal. And he authors the book, Labor and the Class Idea in the United States and Canada by Cambridge University Press. And we definitely have to have him back on to uh, talk about making sure workers are treated more fairly in Wisconsin and elsewhere. But the thing I got most out of that segment, um, Barry said a lot of things, but what I really learned was that Kirk Bankstead is 44 years old. Talk about the phrase ridden hard and put away wet. Oh, <laughs> no. Version of this podcast at uprightpodcast.com. <laughs> don't start now after what you just heard about him. Uh, oh, so, that's, that's so, the worst. You just you spent an entire commercial break like thinking of how you could dig me. The oh, no, that, the that came worst. Mind right away. It, it's it, it wasn't that tough. So Sarah gets the uh, pleasure of introducing our very special guest. On that very happy note, it's a pleasure to welcome Patty Schachner to the program. Patty has worn a lot of hats in service to our neighbors. She's the medical examiner for St. Croix County, former state legislator. She served on her local town board and on local school board. Patty is one of the very earliest trust trustworthy voices that warned us that coronavirus was coming, that it's serious, and that safeguards would help. Instead, she was defeated for re-election for state Senate. Her father died of COVID a few weeks later, and she had to watch people close to her leave their local school board due to the reaction over those basic safeguards. 
Despite all of that, Patty remains a good presence for good health and good politics. Patty, you are the epitome of good government and we miss you as our state <laughs> senator. Thank you for joining us. We missed you. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's such an honor just to be asked to be part of this conversation. Um, I just have to tell you when it comes to public health, uh, and mass casualty incidents. This is something that people in my business train for and plan for that nobody knows about it. We have a, a plan that in our office for a, a pandemic. We've been working on it for years. By statute, it has to be renewed every year. Um, we work on it uh, with our local ambulances, our local hospitals. We train on it. We've been doing this kind of stuff for years. So when it actually happened, we were ready. And the thing we weren't ready for was people not to listen to us. Uh, you know, every county has emergency government. And within every emergency government is a pandemic plan. They're there. We plan for these. So, um, you know, it was a little frustrating, but now as we're coming, you know, we're over a year into this, um, I take off that hat and go into my public school education nursing, uh, nurse's office hat. And we have, you know, when I was a healthcare provider at our high school, we took in immunization records every year. And every year at the beginning of the year, by statute, we had to meet a criteria on what was the acceptable number uh, of students that were vaccinated and that there helped you in your trajectory in planning when influenza came in, when strep throat came in, when the swine flu came in, all these here. You know, people in public health have been planning for this for years and as long as history, but I think this was the first time that the public didn't listen. Well, that's because you plan for science, you plan for facts. Nobody planned for Donald Trump and all the conspiracy <laughs> theorists that would come in and blow up the, the best laid plans. Hey, look, we don't wanna dwell too much in the awful reaction to the COVID outbreak and all the lives it's cost, but we can at least say that a very public recall effort failed on Tuesday against school board members in Mequon Thienesville in the Milwaukee suburbs. It was a very expensive campaign. It attracted gubernatorial candidate Rebecca Cleefish and all kinds of right-wing groups and money. And so, Patty, does that give you any hope that we might be turning the corner on preventing another spike of cases, especially pediatric cases involving kids? Well, I think it proves that people don't listen to radical Barbie. Uh, I mean, radical Rebecca. I mean, it's governor uh, uh, candidate Rebecca Clayfish and that um, that she really doesn't isn't backed up with facts and science. And when parents actually got the right information, they came to the to the to the ballot box and they said, we're taking we're making safety a priority. And they listened. And I think it's inspiring. Uh, with uh, everything that's going on all over to see a community that really had a lot of money invested for an alternative uh, to for facts to matter. It's inspiring. So not only did Mequon have a recall, but weren't there were 16, I feel I, I heard, I read today and all 16 basically were defeated. Uh, so it wasn't Mequon was just the highest profile one 
because all the money was there and you had beautiful anti-vaxxers on TV all the time. <laughs> Basically, I was like, I was like, this is, this is, I don't know. I, I, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there, but I'm like, this is weird uh, because it's, it's a very like telegenic thing happening here. But all across the state, it was, it, this didn't happen. And, and so what that told me was like, this is a this is a very vocal and obnoxious minority and and parents have not gone off the deep end we we, we have the, they we have a select few people who have been told to go off the deep end to advance a strategy to gain power in certain areas of Wisconsin so that they can take over in 2022 but this is not what the typical Wisconsinite believes in they want to take care of their kids they want to protect their kids you know, it's like, it's like, it's obvious, you know, other than the fact that we're getting this screaming and yelling and craziness, but it's obvious to anybody that's just like a homespun person that this makes no sense. What do you think? Patty? Well, it's one of those things, just because you're yelling doesn't mean I can't hear you. I, <laughs> I don't agree with you. You don't have to yell at me to tell me that you think I'm stupid. But that doesn't mean I'm stupid, you know, and, and I'm not, I was raised to be a lady, so I'm not going to tell you you're stupid. I'm just going to nod and yes, I'm probably going to say, isn't that lovely? And all the people who are close to me know what that really means, but I'm a lady and, uh, you know, you just kind of leave it, leave it like that. And I think there are a lot of Wisconsinites that are like that, that are like, I'm just not going to argue with you on this i don't agree but you just keep yelling you do you and i'm gonna do me and when we all get to the ballot box we'll see how it turns out and we saw how it turns out in wisconsin so awesome. this reminds me a lot of or the parallels with critical race theory so and i'm, I'm hearing what you're saying and i agree and i think it's a great approach but when you have people who either don't understand what it is or don't are banking on the fact that no one else knows what it is and they exploit that if the voice for good and truth stays silent those narratives just sort of saturate the the public and you know what do we do to sort of combat this fear-driven narrative we just saw in virginia they lost the governor's office over nonsense over a non-theorian. Uh, and I mean, you've talked to thousands of voters, Patty, <laughs> over the years. Is that the kind of politics we're going to see here next year, do you think? And if so, because you talk to voters directly, what do you think has to be said to voters if the GOP is going to run such a phony yet effective campaign tactic? Well, I think we have to have uh, better conversations and smarter conversations. I saw a video on TikTok and you have to kind of keep up with what's going on with the public. And right now, TikTok's where it's at. And someone, I can't remember who the guy is, but he asked a voter about critical race theory and he just asked him, what is it? And the guy's like, well, I don't know what it is, but it's bad. And I think that the truth is we have to ask our community members when we're having these conversations, well, what is it? What classroom was it taught in? Who was the teacher that taught it? And when they find out that they don't have that evidence, then it's like the follow-up question should always be, do you want factful history taught to your children? And it's like, so you know that, that we all know that critical race theory is not taught in any high school in this state. We, and 
you know, River Falls just did a policy saying it's not going to be taught to appease folks. But the real question here is what the Republicans are trying to do is undermine all public education. Right. So we don't have a lot of choices here in rural Wisconsin. So when they say they want to, you know, get rid of public public education, they want to get rid of it for your kids. So we have to have a real conversation about, okay, here's the facts. You want to be involved with the, with your students and your kids' education? Then tell me where it's being taught. And if you can't say that, then why are you having this conversation? Because you're going to lose your child's public education, which is what you count on, especially in rural Wisconsin. Yeah. And we have to change the narrative with facts and then good conversation. You're absolutely right. I agree with you wholeheartedly. <clears throat> what I think, though, is how they have been effective. So I, I want to go one step before that. Like, you know, in some dark room somewhere, somebody came up with this idea to just create critical race theory. It wasn't as even like, in a dark room. It was out in the open. The guy that, that yeah. started this whole thing admitted to it. He admitted it's a, a fake thing, but it yeah. still worked. So so that's so but everybody bought into that because it, it's like the biggest boogeyman, uh, you know, that you, you, you just create this crazy thing. You, you know, a lot of people that, you know, haven't you know been to college or haven't been to graduate school think a lot of those people are a little hoity-toity, a little snobby. Like, they're like, oh, these people want to, you know, it's a perfect, like, dialogue if somebody hasn't been to grad school to say, these people want to indoctrinate your kids. And so there, there's, it's a great boogeyman. And what I think is the Democratic Party and progressives are, have, when they heard about it, we, ob we went immediately on defense uh, and said, well, A, none of us knew what it was, and now we have to figure out what it is, and now we have to argue why it's not a bad thing. And like, they, they're always on offense. We're reasonable, and we, we were on defense. I think we should turn this tables. Like, let's go on offense on, on a crazy thing that they're talking about and hammer <laughs> away at that, because that's the only way to like make, make the, to bur to break, make the house of cards fall down because if That's we're always on defense always trying to be rational it, it there's a sense that like we're always on our heels and i think that that's what happened with critical race theory is like we're like oh well okay well it's not that bad because it's not that bad but it's just the, it's the lack of, of wanting to take on the difficult conversation whether it was about voting rights then it was civil rights then it was busing then it was you know welfare queens this is the same old stuff, simply repackaged it, this time as a way to whitewash history, but it's in that same vein, Patty. And that, that is, that is a tough road to hoe in rural Wisconsin. So, so here's what makes me laugh when we have these conversations, because we all know that critical race theory is a graduate level class. Most of the Republican legislators have graduate level degrees. Most of the people who vote for them do not. The only difference is they go back into the public, put on a flannel shirt, put on a pair of old jeans, shitty oops, poopy boots, <laughs> <laughs> and then say, I'm one of you. At the same time, they're telling you 
your kids need to go to trade school while their kids are going to college and getting advanced degrees. And they are counting on middle, middle America to say, we're going to listen to you. And we literally do what they say. And they just keep on practicing a whole different hypocritical thing. It well, makes part of the reason so for that angry. though, Patty, is that they, they, they don't have to really face voters when you've gerrymandered the maps and we've got just enough time for me to squeeze in this last question. And it's about now that you have Governor Evers in the governor's office rather than Scott Walker, you have a pretty good chance that the courts will end up drawing the maps and that they will not be nearly as rigged. So the, the quick question for you is, is this, if a set of fair maps were drawn for Wisconsin, do you see districts along the western edge of the state as becoming more competitive, as more and more suburban women want nothing to do with the want nothing to do with what the Republican Party has become under Trump and all the other conspiracy theorists? Or does the GOP have a stranglehold on your part of the state, no matter where they put the lines? I think it will always be complicated, but it's changing and it's changing a little bit at a time. But we have to really. Uh, when you look at, uh, I mean, we're such a dynamic group, St. Croix County, if you just take St. Croix County from Hudson to Glenwood City, two totally different communities, but yet both communities have the same problems, they only look different. So we really have to start looking at how we are talking to people and are they really getting what we, we want. And I think all my kids are grown. I think the Democrats should have a sign up everywhere that says, you like your child tax credit? Democrats did that to you. Because when that money starts going away, they're gonna be looking at a whole different kind of hurt. Well, thank you, Patty. It is such a pleasure to have you and you'll have to join us again soon. Anytime. <laughs> oh, we would love that, Patty. Thank you so much. All right, we'll take our final thank break. Thank you. And uh, coming up after, uh, after the break, the right Reverend Kirk Bankstead on the current Republican platform and the OG platform is found in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. You're up north. <laughs> yeah, we said I was a better person than I knew I was. I got blood on my Back to the Up North podcast, I'm Sarah Yacoub. Sarah Yacoub is also in charge of uh, breaking down Hallmark Christmas movies for us in uh, future episodes. Apparently, one of them is set in Hudson, so we're, we're going to be watching out for, for that real soon. Uh, I'm Pat Kreitlow, and uh, Patty Schachner sticks around with us to join the Reverend Kirk Bangstead, who joins us with a few words about the Sermon on the Mount, a version you could call Sermon on the Six Pack, because while enjoying some of his progressive beer, which, by the way, is very biblical, it says right there in the book of Isaiah, uh, come, each one cries. Let me get wine. Let us drink our fill of beer, and tomorrow will be like today or even far better. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. <laughs> and so it occurred to, to Kirk that the Beatitudes are a far cry from the current platform of the Republican Party, which last year did not even adopt a platform of positions on governing. All they did was pledge allegiance to Donald Trump. So Father Bankstead, you uh, think that they should maybe consult the good book and engage in some self-examination. Am I right? Yeah. So basically when I ran for assembly uh, last summer, um, you know, I, I heard all of, you know, just you listen to all this about progressives uh, not being Christian. And I was thinking about all the things that the Republicans have done to the state of Wisconsin that are about as anti-Christian as you can possibly imagine. I mean, we're talking about child labor today. 
we're talking about, you know, lying to people about their health. So, you know, they actually get sick and die. So I, you know, I, I, I wrote back then and I, I, I talked to my pastor and I, I, I learned more about the Beatitudes, which are a beautiful piece of the Bible that, that I wanted to read today. And I wanted to have ask you guys after I read this to let's take it away from Republican and Democrat. Let's take it away from child labor and just terrible things. How do the Beatitudes from the, from the Bible like get us to think about working together with all Wisconsinites to make this state what we believe it can be. So let me read them. And then I want you guys to think about you just reflect. All right. So now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for their, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be fulfilled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they perse persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, the one that I want to jump on first there is one I never thought we would have to, to revisit. Of all the lines that are in there, and we've, you know, people have covered a lot of them. When Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, that seemed self-evident. And yet now, over the past year, as people have mourned, they have not been comforted. As they have seen uh, the loss of their loved ones discounted, diminished, um, called fake news, whatever you want. The fact that we, we can't comfort those who mourn together as a people, that really sticks out. I, I was not expecting that to be the, the line there, but uh, what does everybody else think? Patty, uh, anything stand out from you there? Uh, I, I would agree. I, I think that the, just the, the overall feeling of goodness for just being a good, kind person is not where we are at right now as a society. And right now, kindness, just overall kindness and genuine caring seems to be considered a weakness. And I think it'll come back but that's all I have. <laughs> well, for me, the blessed are the pure in heart uh, speaks to sort of that integrity, that honesty, that it seems like at least my grandparents instilled in me as a, a child. And that seems to have gone out the window. It's now okay to be dishonest or manipulative as a means to an end, particularly in politics. And that's just not okay. No, it's not. So Kirk, we, we uh, really appreciate you sharing this. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't know what made you think of it, but glad you did. Yeah, man. It's yeah. I know we're closing soon, but you got to get back to what we were raised with and what we are what what was instilled in us. Because sometimes we can we can veer off of the veer off the path. Yeah, we're we're all in this together. So, hey, thanks again to our guest, Professor Barry Eidlin and former state senator Patty Schachner. You can reach the show by email info at upnorthpodcast.com. and we thank you again for joining us up north. We'll talk to you next week. Watch this